In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the OGGN HSE podcast sponsored by Endress and Hauser a global leader in process automation and measurement instrumentation, Endress and Hauser, the people for process automation. I am especially excited about today's show, and I want to get right to it and introduce my guest, the founder and CEO of K Carpenter Associates, KCA, Kevin Carpenter. Kevin, I know it's the obligatory thing to say to all the guests, you know, thanks for coming on today, but I really am honored to have you. You have established a consultancy firm that has quickly grown into a team of expert professionals serving not only energy clients, but the technology, healthcare, and legal industry as well. And while I specifically want to discuss with you your most recent webinar entitled, What Does a Low Carbon Future Mean to Me? First of all, I want you to tell us more about yourself and, and more about KCA in particular. And before you start, Kevin, I just got in my email my Boudreaux and Thibodeau joke of the day. This is an international podcast, so there may be a lot of folks listening to this who, who don't understand what we call Cajuns from Louisiana. But it's its own country and its own culture in, in southern Louisiana, and Cajun jokes are really popular they're generally associated with either Boudreaux or Thibodeau. So today's Boudreaux and Thibodeau joke is that Boudreaux and Thibodeau walked into a pub and ordered a couple of drinks. They then took sandwiches from paper bags they had brought with them and they began to eat. Seeing this, the angry pub owner approached them and says, excuse me, but you cannot eat your own sandwiches in here. Boudreaux and Thibodeau looked at each other, shrugged, and exchanged sandwiches. So, so Kevin, what I'm trying to tell you is you can eat your own sandwiches on this podcast. Tell me about KCA and tell me about yourself. Yeah, I can actually see that happening. And thanks for having me on your podcast. So a little bit about me. Gosh, I started back in the industry 30 plus years ago, I suppose. First at Conoco and worked there for 18 years in everything from working in the refinery to the midstream crews and product supply and trading to systems to management of the commercial support group and special projects and so on and so forth. I left and joined a consultant company called Decision Strategies in 2002. And my very first project was actually a alternative energy or an associated alternative energy for the gasification of petroleum coke instead of coal. So it was using the, the petroleum coke from a refinery to turn into a gasification fuel and use that to generate electricity, which among other things it did, was provided a very concentrated CO2 stream that you could then sequester. So even back in 2002, the client in this case was focused on recognizing that CO2 was something that they was going to have to be managed in the future. And this is one of the technologies they were looking at now, you know, 20 years ago. After decision strategies, I left in 2009 and started my own firm. And we've grown to about 15 people now. We service oil and gas and healthcare and some stuff in the legal profession as well. 
And we do everything from the decision analysis or stochastic modeling to project management and change management and IT development of, of tools for teams and pretty much anything that the business needs, we will find a way to support and help with. But our main bread and butter is decisions and strategies around oil and gas. So we do a lot of work associated with figuring out the economics and the insights for leveraging the uncertainty around economics in order to make projects more successful. And sometimes that takes a little bit of time. Sometimes it takes a lot of time, but it always returns multiple exponential benefits versus the base value of your project. So if you're not looking at those uncertainties and, and capturing what we call the value of information, the value of control, you're probably leaving money on the table. And it's been that way for all sorts of oil and gas projects, as well as for alternative energy projects and CO2 capture and storage and carbon credit projects. There's always uncertainty and that uncertainty always has a value that we can then try to figure out ways to take advantage of. And KCA does a good job of that as you lead that organization. You were a little bit modest when you worked for Conoco. You were lead on a Conoco patent for transition processing systems to facilitate the commercial support activities associated with the buying and selling of commodity products. So you had a very successful career at Conoco, and you now have a very successful career at KCA. And I guess on the oil and gas side, KCA is best known maybe for its Houston energy breakfast? I think from a broad image, yes, probably so. Now, the Houston energy breakfast is a spinoff of, of a breakfast that we had at Decision Strategies, which was actually a spinoff of a breakfast that was started years ago by a gentleman named Steve Jacobs, who has, has since passed. But it, it started out with he and four or five of his buddies sitting in a cafe in Kingwood talking about issues. And it has grown from that to be, in our event, a 300 plus person event when we used to be able to have them in person. Right, um, right. We had to do it virtual this year, right? We did have to do it virtual this year. But when it was a meeting, it was 300 plus folks networking and then listening to panels talk about the issues. And that is probably where most people have heard of us. Our client work is tends to be very focused and we keep it kind of low key. So we do a lot of work and, and have worked for probably every major oil company, as well as a lot of smaller independents within the energy industry. But we're not like the big consulting companies that, that come out and do big splashy ads in Wall Street talking about doing work for this company. That's not how we approach things. Right. Well, and so speaking of that approach and the Houston Energy Breakfast had to be virtual this year. You recently, December 1 to be exact, you held as a sister event to the Houston Energy Breakfast a webinar entitled, I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, it was a webinar entitled, What Does a Low Carbon Future Mean to Me? And this this is why I really wanted to have you on the podcast today. I was really fascinated by some of the things you said, quite frankly surprised by what I perceived as you're em embracing this future of renewables, I don't want to certainly not be an argumentative or adversar adversarial, but let me begin by telling one of my favorite stories. And of course, those who know me know that I have a lot of stories and nearly every one of my favorite. But 
two men who were obviously dressed as clergymen were standing on the side of the road just before a large curve, and they were holding up a sign that said, the end is near. So a young, insolent yuppie drives by in a loud, vocal way. He scoffs at the two men, and then he pushes down on the accelerator, and he races around the curve. And a few seconds later, you hear this terrible crash. One of the ministers looked at the other and said, do you think we ought to change our sign to bridge out up ahead? Now, that's an antidote about effective communication, and a lot of lessons could be fleshed out here that we might discuss. But let me just go straight to the question regarding your presentation. Is the end near for oil and gas? Is the bridge out up ahead? And the reason I ask is because I thought I heard you say, and maybe you can correct me here, but I thought I heard you say that that not only are renewables here and they're here to stay, but we had better embrace it rather than fight it. And that's actually what a lot of the major oil companies are doing. Can we talk about this? Sure, we we happy to. Well, first of all, let, let me clarify. The end is not near for oil and gas companies. And maybe we need to start rephrasing oil and gas companies and talk to them in the broader sense as energy companies. But okay, let's just differentiate for a moment between hydrocarbons and low carbon. So hydrocarbons, a typical you know, oil and gas that's produced and refined and fractionated and put in your car and used to heat homes and used to cook on stoves, that hydrocarbon source of energy is starting to be replaced with non-hydrocarbon sources of energy. There's articles out by several people this week that says they think that demand has peaked that the demand for hydrocarbon sourced energy will not go up from here. Now, the first thing I would say about that, and I hear a lot of people, and I read a lot of stuff in the papers about people saying things like, we'll never see $100 oil again, or demand has peaked, or supply has peaked, or we're never gonna see negative price oil. Anybody that comes out and, and makes declarative, never gonna see sort of statements, I think is is very short-sighted. There are many things in the world that could happen that could drive us to $100 oil again. If you say the way things are right now, we're not going to see $100 oil, I can agree with that. But you can envision a lot of things happening that disrupt supply, that demand doesn't increase as fast as or as slow as people think that could actually make the price of oil go much higher. So my only point is that beware of anybody that says it's absolutely going to be this way or that, because if they're, if they're that good, they're probably not writing articles and doing podcasts, right? They probably are are trading and make a lot of money on that. Now, secondly, when you think about hydrocarbon based energy and non-hydrocarbon based energy, Companies, including the governments, but also oil and gas companies, have been investigating non-hydrocarbon-based energy sources for a very long time, for 20 years, if not longer, because it is an alternative, but it's not necessarily, we can't think of it as a 100% replacement. You're, You're not going to disrupt the hydrocarbon energy source in North America in the next three years. It's not going to just evaporate and go away. Now, will it go away in a hundred years? Maybe, but a whole lot of things have to happen and change for that to occur. But by then, you've got to imagine that the energy companies will also be in the non-hydrocarbon-based or low-carbon-based supply business, and they're going to be just fine. 
there are several companies out there today that have not only investigated and invested in low carbon energy sources, but are investing in things like direct air capture for CO2 or different CO2 sequestration so that it can be used to inject and enhance oil recovery. All of this is, is going on out there, and it should not be a surprise to anybody that companies that are run by really smart people are not going to just stick their heads in the sand and ignore the potential change in the energy source. But no, I don't think it's going to put any of these energy companies out of business unless they completely ignore it and get completely blindsided. But I don't know of any company that's completely ignoring it at this point. So how are they approaching it right now? Well, companies like Chevron, for example, have a whole group, a whole subsidiary company called Chevron Technology Ventures that invests in alternative energy or energy storage or alternative technologies that either enhance their business or enhance things like carbon capture, CO2 credit management, or low carbon energy source production. So you're talking wave and solar and wind, for example. Occidental Petroleum is a big investor in direct air capture units. They plan to be one of the largest with the goal of being carbon neutral in just not too many years. And not just carbon neutral for what they produce, but carbon neutral for down the supply line, for what their products, how their products are used by the consumer. So how does this direct air capture work? Well, imagine a huge machine that as the air, which is full of CO2, comes through the machine, it takes the CO2, and it compresses it, and it captures it, and it allows it to be taken out of the air and stored underground. It's a very expensive proposition. It's not economical with today's numbers necessarily, but again, with all technologies, the cost per utility goes down. We've seen that with every technology you can think of. So eventually it will become more and more profitable to do things like direct air capture just like it's become more and more profitable to do things like wind and solar. Well, and along those lines, because you just mentioned the big boogeyman, and that's economics. And of course, a lot of people on the oil and gas side, you know, that's one of the first things they bring up or first objection they bring up, you know. But as you said, things are becoming more economical. One of the things that I found interesting in your presentation in your webinar was electric cars. So let's talk about electric cars for a little bit, because there, there are several different things that drive them to be affordable. And affordable is not just economics, but also let's call it the utility value of having that electric car. But for the longest time, the barrier for buying an electric car has been either the performance of the machine or how far you can drive it before you have to recharge it and how long it takes you to recharge it. So a lot of times we tell our client as a thought exercise, just imagine if those barriers are gone. Imagine one, if you could charge it in 10 minutes and get 80% of the charge up on your battery, which is about how long it takes to fill up the gas tank, right? And continue on down the road. So imagine that that can happen, first of all, which means imagine that you can now drive for 10 hours a day. Much beyond that, you're going to be kind of tired. So a 10-hour range is, is enough for most people. 
Imagine now also that that car has the performance that whether you, you use it to haul things like a pickup truck or whether you use it to drive a sports car like a Corvette or whether you use it to drive people like a sedan, it has the utility function that you need and the performance you need out of that vehicle. Now, if you had an alternative that did all of those things and did not cost you appreciably much more in total cost of ownership versus, versus a hydrocarbon-based car, your cost to switch now simply becomes a preference. Do I like this versus that? Do I like the technology or the bells and whistles of this vehicle versus that vehicle? And if you want proof that it's becoming economic, look no further than all the electric models that are coming out next year from multiple oil, multiple companies. And the fact that GM is trying to place 30 plus new models in just a couple of years out into the marketplace because they recognize it's not necessarily where the government's pushing us to, but it's actually where the consumer is wanting to go. And then actually going back to this question is the end nears the bridge out. Uh, one thing that's, that's often not taken into account, you still need the petroleum industry to make these cars, whether they're running off electricity or gas, right? <laughs> well, well, that's true. And, and I talked a little bit about this on, on the first at the presentation, if you if you sit in the room wherever you're sitting right now and you just look around, everything around you has been touched by the petroleum hydrocarbon part of the petroleum industry. Whether it's the paint on the door or the lacquer on the floor or the transportation to get some of the things there or the aluminum and steel that's in your room or the, the wood that had to go through a sawmill. Or your smartphone. Those, sorry? I said, or your smartphone or your smartphone, and yes, all your electronics, all the plastic that you have, of course, is all hydrocarbon-based. I think what most people react to is the fact that, oh, we're not going to make as much gasoline. So therefore, if we don't make as much gasoline, the oil and gas companies are out of business, and that's simply not the case. If you don't make as much gasoline, you're going to have to make something else, and that something else can just as easily be made by an energy company than it can a startup out of his garage. And the fact is the people that work in those energy companies know how to scale. They know how to do the engineering. They know how to roll out the business. So I, I would bet money that those are the ones that are going to succeed long-term in providing some of these energy sources rather than, than people that don't have the experience in running businesses and running scale. Well, that's exactly right. And quite frankly, from an environmental point of view, not running cars on gasoline is probably better for the air, right? Well, it is if that electricity is also generated from a low carbon source. If all you're doing is moving the carbon generation to a source of making electricity that fuels that car, you're not really saving much. It's more efficient for sure, but it's not 100% savings. But if you, if you have a low carbon generation that feeds electricity, that feeds your car, yes, that will reduce the sale of gasoline at the pump, no doubt about it. Now, that has an unintended consequence as well. If you've got all these electric cars on the road and they're not filling gasoline at the pump, they're not paying road tax at the pump either. So all those taxes that you pay now when you go fill up your F-150 is not collected when you plug your car into your garage. Yet that car is still using the road. It's still 
damaging the road like any other car and you still have to maintain your roads and bridges. So without the revenue from gasoline sales, how are we going to maintain our roads and bridges? The answer has got to be that we're going to end up taxing one way or another. We're going to end up taxing electric vehicles just like we do internal combustion vehicles, whether that's based on miles or kilowatts used or tax at the time you buy the vehicle. So it, it's interesting that for years and years, there have been incentives, right, to buy electric vehicles. There will come a tipping point where those incentives flip around and say, well, no, no we really need to charge you for those electric vehicles because you're driving on our roads too. And we're not collecting those revenues otherwise. And these are the kinds of things that have to be balanced out when we're talking about renewables and oil and gas and that sort of thing. Let me ask you a couple other questions, maybe three, and then we'll wind this thing down. Natural gas. We're talking about electric cars here. And, you know, I thought I would have told you probably five or six years ago, the dream was, and there was especially one particular company out there that we won't mention, all our cars are going to be run on natural gas. Natural gas is going to replace coal. Natural, I mean, natural gas was going to be the thing. And that just hasn't happened, has it? It hasn't. I don't see a lot of compressed natural gas vehicles. There are some, especially you'll see some utility trucks and things like that that run compressed natural gas. But it's not been broadly adopted. I think in part because the cost to switch is so high and the utility value of having a car on gasoline versus natural gas there's not a huge advantage of switching. And, and I can think back, I'll tell my own story, all the way back to high school, which was for me in the 70s. I had a buddy whose dad switched his car over to run on CNG. I did too. And I thought it was, it was a cool idea. It was neat, but it was the same car, right? There wasn't anything cool and new about his car. It just the fuel system was different. Right. So if that's all you're getting by switching the fuel system, then there's not a lot of incentive to switch. And I think that's probably what's happened. Natural gas is very, very inexpensive. And if you could make a huge switch, I think you'd probably have economics to do that. However, what's happened instead is that we bypassed that and skipped over it, if you will, to more of an electric source. And that has displaced the possibility, I think, of going to a CNG future. And so, would you agree that maybe the future of natural gas, when we start talking about is the end there, the future of natural gas is actually probably in exporting and going to countries that, you know, aren't where we are on the scale of renewables and natural gas is very viable for them? I think it will depend on a couple of things. But bottom line, if you're not selling it in your backyard and you can still produce it economically, you're going to sell it to your neighbor across the pond or in another country. Part of that might be driven by legislation. Most likely it's going to be driven by economics. I would prefer to see all of these decisions be driven by economics versus legislation or regulation. But with the change in the political climate, that may not be possible. I do see that there's going to be continued push to limit natural gas, whether from an economic limit or regulatory limits, which means that in order to get rid of or sell your natural gas, you may have to export it, which might make the LNG business increase by quite a bit. And I would guess that those countries that, that you're, you're talking about will probably lag behind the adoption of low carbon energy. And as a result, they may be the customers for, 
for natural gas for the foreseeable future. Okay, two more questions. In your presentation, you talked about the place of hydrogen. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, hydrogen's an interesting one, and it's been looked at for several years as well with visions of things like we're going to put the, the hydrogen fueling ability at existing gas stations, for example. I remember a company looking at that one time. Where I've seen it most recently talked about was that the, I think it's Cummins diesel engines have said that they are planning to switch over to be able to use hydrogen. And I want to say that I also read that GE is looking at making the turbines that they use to generate electricity be able to run on both natural gas as it is today, as well as hydrogen in the future. So it's not very much talked about in the, in the press, but it seems like there is something going on that's pushing us more and more toward hydrogen as a, an industrial fuel versus not a home fuel, but as an industrial fuel that maybe it, it just hasn't been hit mainstream yet, but it, and we may hear a lot more about that next year. But it is much cleaner. It is much more environmentally friendly, right? It is. And it, of course, has has a heck of a flashpoint and it burns invisible and that can be a, an issue as well. A safety issue. A safety issue. But it certainly is far more environmentally friendly. Okay, final thing in your presentation. This was actually after the presentation. It was in the Q&A. Someone said, since we're talking about, you know, the future in this oil and gas industry, and and I like the way you said we need to broaden that and start talking about not oil and gas companies, but energy companies. We need to talk about energy. But for the future, for people who are, especially we have a very, I went to high school back in the 70s too, so you and I are, but we got a lot of we got a lot of people listening that weren't even born then. And so for their future and for what companies are going to be looking for and what you should be educating yourself in, do you have some comment on that or advice on that? Sure. And having kids that just recently got out of college and started their careers. And what I tell other young people that I, I speak to today, it's still very much a focus on the science, technology, mathematics, engineering type things. Because it doesn't matter whether your source is hydrocarbon or, or low carbon, you've got to do engineering, you've got to do construction, you've got to do management of those things, and you've got to do the science to support and make those technologies cheaper, better. That means you've got to focus on the science aspect of your career, of your education. I can't stress enough, you know, kids should take chemistry, they should take physics, they should, in high school, they should take engineering classes when they're in college, whether they want to be an engineer or not, just to be able to understand what engineering issues truly are. So the more of that you can do, I think if you were junior in high school looking at what do I want to do my senior year and through college, that's where I would tell you to put your focus. Okay, Kevin, we really appreciate this, and we're happy to know that there is is a future in the energy industry. I definitely think there's a future for KCA and people who want to explore this and understand this and all of that. They need to contact KCA. We'll put your website in the show notes on this podcast. We'll put your LinkedIn URL on there as well. And again, thank you, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please tell your friends to listen. Post us on LinkedIn and your other social media. Leave us a review on iTunes. And please tune in again next week for another episode of Anderson Hauser's Oil and Gas HSE podcast. 
a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Anderson Hauser is your reliable partner for measurement instrumentation services and solutions. We are your people for process automation. Discover more about Anderson Hauser by looking in the show notes for our website link at cx.endress.com forward slash HSE dash podcast and register for our monthly podcast giveaway there. Also posted is the LinkedIn and Twitter links. See you next time. Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for December 2020. This month we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events that I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two OGGN live streams, and on the third, we have Moving Up in a Downturn, and on the eighth, we have Quality Management in a Down Economy. The only in-person event we have this month is the API and SPE Houston Chapter Luncheon about the rebuilding of the American oil field, which will be at the Petroleum Club on the 8th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for December, and I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.